Well, howdy everybody. Welcome to episode number 11 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. And boy, do I have an interesting episode for you. I've been doing a little reading and uh, found some cool stuff. And so I'm going to tell you which book I'm going to kind of read out of, tell you a little bit about. But uh, yeah, so pretty excited about this. Sorry, just had a little bit of a blip there. Didn't think it was recording for a second. So first and foremost, this is Once Upon a Time in Texas. I am Michael Mitchell, your host. Glad to be here. Happy for all my tens of listeners. <laughs> so y'all be sharing with your friends, uh, family, anybody and everybody you think would listen. Because um, I've been told many times I've got a face for radio and a voice for newspaper. So there you go. <laughs> so I have had a few folks say that I have a good voice for what I'm doing here on the podcast. But uh, like I said, I am Michael Mitchell. I am the uh, producer, the host. Well, I say producer. I don't really produce much. I pretty much just turn on the old computer and grab the microphone and just start talking. So Once Upon a Time in Texas is sponsored by Miracle Mortgage. And that is the mortgage company that uh, that I work with. So you can find me at themichaelmitchell.com. And so if you know anybody moving to or in the state of Texas, have them give me a shout. I can do loans anywhere in the state of Texas. We can do VA, USDA, FHA, conventional, all kinds of stuff. So just give me a shout. Let me know what you're doing. And we'll see if we can figure it out. So there you go. There, there's the plug for my business. That's what keeps this old podcast going, I guess. <clears throat> so like I said, this is number 11. And uh, I want to talk about some Texas inventions. And so I do want to give credit where credit is due because I'm, I'm going to be pulling all this stuff out of a, of a book that I'm really enjoying so far. The book is called The Great Book of Texas. The Crazy History of Texas with Amazing Random Facts and Trivia written by a guy named Bill O'Neill. So, yeah. Anyway, it looks like he's written a bunch of stuff. I think I've got a few of his other books that I'm really looking forward to digging into. But I kind of wanted to talk about some of the things that that he brings up here in the book that are Texas inventions or ideas or whatever. So, of course, what would Texas be? Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up. So Texas inventions, that's what we're going to focus on today. And uh, all of these I found fascinating. A few of these that I knew um, were Texas staples. Others, not so much. So here we go. Uh, first one, of course, we're going to start off with. Anybody guess what probably the biggest world-known um, Texas invention would be? I'll let you think about it for a second. I'll even give you a hint. It started in Waco, and it wasn't Chip and Joanna Gaines. Anybody? It was actually Dr. Pepper, the beloved soft drink soda or Coke. We call them all Cokes down here. But yeah, Dr. Pepper. Um, it's interesting. People love it or hate it. Um, just a little side note. They had a big, uh, on their logo for a long time, they had 10, 2, and 4. And the idea was that if you drank Dr. Pepper from, or at a Dr. Pepper from at uh, 10, 2, and 4 during the day, that your bowels would remain regular 
And the assumption was that Dr. Pepper may have used like a prune juice base or something like that. I don't know. I read that somewhere. Maybe I saw it at the Dr. Pepper Museum when I went. My wife is a Dr. Pepper fanatic. She obsesses about it. Um, not near as much as, um, well, she doesn't obsess about me really at all. Mostly just Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so anyway, it was invented in 1885 in Waco, Texas. And it was invented by a pharmacist, a guy named Charles Alderton. So he worked at a, uh, at a drugstore, I guess, called Morris's Old Corner Drugstore. And if you guys ever have the chance to go to Waco and check out the Dr. Pepper Museum, whether you're a Dr. Pepper fan or not, it is, it is like legit. It is a great, great, great museum. It, it's really a lot of fun. So, <clears throat> like I said, I'm reading out of this book a little bit here. So um, his job was to mix medications mostly. But he also enjoyed creating new soft drink recipes at the soda fountain. And I can remember being a kid way up in Hominy, Oklahoma. So I'll give a shout out to Hominy, Oklahoma. Me and my girlfriend. So shout out to uh, Oni Bobette Harlan. Um, <laughs> she was my girlfriend from third to fifth grade until I moved. It was super hot. I think we held hands a couple of times. Went to the skating rink. But mostly we just rode bicycles around Hominy, Oklahoma. But... We used to go and they still had a soda fountain in there. It was, it was awesome. Like they would, they would go and, you know, they would make you a, uh, oh shoot, a Coke float, you know, right there is really cool. But anyway, um, sorry, get a little sidetracked there. Mr. Alderton, um, would do up these different soft drink recipes because they used to mix, you know, the bubbly, the carbonation with the syrup <laughs> and all that. Sorry, got a little bit of cough. So the first guy to taste test Alderton's original recipe was Wade Morrison. So he was the owner of this particular drugstore. So he liked the flavor just as much as Alderton did. And so they began offering it to store customers because why not? You know, people are coming in, might as well, you know, serve them something to drink. So, <coughs> sorry. Early, early customers did call it Waco. And so, oh my gosh, my son left his cell phone at home and you can hear Top Gun. So anyway, I'll just keep going. Man, this is my life. Yeah, if you thought you were listening to a professional podcast, nope, it's just me making it up as I go. So they originally started calling the drink Waco and then they would ask for a Waco or a shot of Waco. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um... So Wade Morrison, the owner, I guess the head pharmacist, is credited with naming Dr. Pepper. However, there is a lot of controversy, as there often is, on why he chose the name. Uh, according to the Dr. Pepper Museum, there are actually 12 different theories on how they came up with Dr. Pepper. So the most popular theory is that it was named after an actual Dr. Pepper. It's rumored that Pepper may have either given Morrison his first job or Morrison may have been in love with Pepper's daughter because, of course, why not have some sort of love story in there? But there's no record that proves that at all. Uh, another, another theory that they've got is that it may have been given the, the doctor moniker to convince people that it was actually healthy. 
Because again, why not? I mean, there was lots of quackery back in the 1880s. You know, why not some sort of special soft drink? That would make you feel better. So that was actually a pretty common thing to, uh, to trick people back in that time. You know, snake oil, stuff like that. So no one knows for sure. And it seems like it'll, you know, be a mystery forever. And that's okay. Um, the early spelling of the name Dr. Pepper did have a DR period. However, the period was later removed to make a more stylistic statement. So, who knows? They also felt like that uh, the early logo, you know, with the period actually made it hard to read. I don't know. So, the recipe for Dr. Pepper is still a secret. Um, there was a book of formulas and recipes that were believed to be from Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore um, that was discovered once in an antique store in the Panhandle of Texas. And there was a recipe in the book called D. Pepper's Pepsin Bitters, which a lot of people believe may have actually been the early recipe for Dr. Pepper. So the Dr. Pepper Snapple group, which actually owns Dr. Pepper now, um, denied that that was actually the recipe for the soda, which, of course, you know, I would too if it was a super secret recipe. Um... But the whole idea, remember that 10, 2, and 4 that I talked about on the logo and that everybody just always assumed that there was a base of prune juice? Well, Dr. Pepper has actually denied those claims as well, that there is no prune juice base. So there you go. So how about another one here? This is another great one. Man, I, I'll tell you what, when you're cruising around in the Texas heat, or really any kind of heat, um, a Slurpee... There's just nothing better. Places call them ICs, but Slurpees. So the international convenience store chain, 7-Eleven, and I did not know this, it opened its first location in Dallas, Texas in 1927. So almost 100 years, 96 years, I guess, this year. It was the very first convenience store in America. When 7-Eleven first opened, it had grocery store items, you know, like eggs and milk. Um, they also had blocks of ice. And then the following year, they began to sell gasoline. So there you go. 7-Eleven was a convenience store. It did not actually start as a gas station. Boy, they've made up for that now. So in 1965, 7-Eleven began selling the Slurpee, which was first called an Icy. See, I didn't know that either, but I remember seeing Slurpees. So the Slurpee, and this is, a, this is a big shout out for my mom and wife because this is one of their favorite drinks. The Slurpee, and a lot of people don't know this, later became the inspiration, remember that word, inspiration for the frozen margarita. Oh, and people have been in love with it ever since. The margarita itself had already been invented in Mexico. It was a huge hit in Mexico, obviously. But the frozen margarita actually started in Texas. So the first frozen margarita, margarita machine, which can now be seen at the Smithsonian, that's how impressive frozen margarita machines are. Go to the Smithsonian. It was invented in 1971 and was created by a restauranteur named Mariano Martinez, who drew his inspiration 
from this Dallas 7-Eleven. You know, very cool. So then the book goes on to say, according to the Dallas Morning News, Martinez said, I had a sleepless night. Probably because he didn't have enough margaritas or maybe he had too many. <laughs> and then the next day, I stopped to get a cup of coffee at 7-Eleven and I saw that Slurpee machine. The entire concept hit me at one time. <laughs> oh, man. You know, rare is it that you walk into a convenience store and you see something and you just go, hmm, I need to invent something else. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Yeah. The, the original, um, the original frozen, frozen margarita machine was probably just a Slurpee machine with different stickers on it. I don't know. I guess I'll have to go to the Smithsonian next time I go to Washington, D.C. to see my cousin. All right, so the next one we're going to go to. Y'all ready for this? This is a big one. Well, some of them are small ones, but some of them are really big. Y'all ready? The Underwire Bra. <laughs> this is great, and I love that it can be attributed to Texas. So it's hard to think that at one point, we didn't even have Underwire Bras. And uh, this we can thank Texas for. Howard Hughes' son, we all know Howard Hughes, um, appropriately named Howard Hughes Jr., was an inventor and filmmaker himself. Uh, he was from Houston, and he was credited with developing the first workable underwire bra. So I'd heard this before, but I'd actually heard that it was, that, that the invention was given to Howard Hughes himself, I guess, senior. So it was first introduced in a movie that he made called The Outlaw. So the bra was worn by actress Jane Russell. Um, she wasn't impressed with the bra at all. She said it hurt so much that she ended up secretly taking it off and stuffing tissues in her regular bra. Huh. Which I guess lots of young ladies still do, maybe sometimes. I don't know. So despite her disappointment... The bra still took off. Um, it became very popular for a couple of different reasons. Um, number one, the amount of publicity it got from the movie, because apparently it made her breasts look very nice. And the movie was apparently a hit. And, you know, tons of ladies, I'm sure, went and saw the movie, and they wanted their chest to look like hers. And then the uh, second part was the discontinuance of metal rationing after World War II had ended. So that's kind of cool. So if you wear underwire bras, ladies, um, thank Texas and Howard Hughes Jr. And uh, actress Jane Russell in The Outlaw for her pain and suffering. <laughs> oh, Lord. The stuff I find, I'm telling you, I'm so random when I find this crap. All right, so here's another one. The microchip. Now think about what I'm saying. If I had said the microchip was invented in Texas... I bet most of y'all would think, no, that was probably California, Silicon Valley. And no, I'm pretty sure there's a boatload of them out there that, that were sold from out there. I've even got a friend here in Wichita Falls that used to work um, for a Silicon Valley-based company, and that was his job was selling microchips. He talked about that a lot. So microchips obviously are used in all kinds of things, you know, cell phones, computers, tablets, iPads, iPhones. Basically, everything we take for granted today has a microchip in it. But uh, it was a Dallas-based electronics company that really brought these microchips around. 
And this little, this little tiny company is called Texas Instruments. So if any of you guys have ever had to take a college level math class, you probably used a TI-82 calculator. Or I don't know what the older ones were called. They were 2I82 or TI-82 or 2I83. Not 2I, TI. And the TI stands for Texas Instruments. So Texas Instruments um, is based in Dallas and they designed the first microchip. It introduced the invention to the world in 1959 at the Radio Engineers Annual Trade Show in New York City. Huh. I didn't even know they had such a thing. So no one really realized, though, and this is kind of crazy, no one realized what a huge invention it was at the time. No one had a clue about microchips, and it really was everybody just kind of went, eh, those are cute. <laughs> and, and then, of course, you know, they're the foundation of all electronics used today. Isn't that crazy? So, yeah, one of those little things. All right, so how about we talk about a, uh, a chain of businesses called Whole Foods. So this is one of the most well-known, high-end, natural food supermarkets. We just got one here in Wichita Falls about two years ago. They have over 80,000 employees in more than 400 locations across the world and has been ranked as one of the top 100 best places to work. That's awesome. I mean, these guys hire certified cheese professionals. And I'm going, really? That sounds amazing. And it even says in the book here, in order to qualify for such a moniker, you must receive their certification from the American Cheese Society. I'm going to have to look that up later because I love cheese. In case you can't tell through the microphone here, I'm pretty cheesy myself. So, as most of you know, or may not know, Whole Foods sells organic products, and they focus a lot on health-conscious customers. Uh, my little sister shops there a lot. I think they have them in Oregon. I'm not sure. I know she shopped there a lot when she lived here. Um, their meat is always advertised as free of hormones and antibiotics. Um... The brand, the store, does have a ban on foods containing high fructose corn syrup, along with a hundred other ingredients. So, very health conscious, very good stuff. The very first Whole Foods, of course, was opened in Austin, because Austin likes stuff like that, and still do. Austin's pretty awesome. And it started way back in 1980, so 43 years ago. And this is when uh, four Austin grocers decided to band together and create this one supermarket. And then after a while, they began to add more locations and then eventually neighboring states and then the rest of the U.S. And now you can even find Whole Foods in other countries. So this is interesting, though, and I did not know this. The, the Whole Foods store that's located in Austin still remains the largest store in the entire chain and it has over 80,000 square feet of space. I, if you don't know 80,000 square feet, the average house in the United States is probably 1,400 square feet. So 80,000 square feet of groceries. Um, but it is noted in this book, they also have a rooftop ice skating rink, because why not? And a full bar. This sounds like my kind of grocery store. 
you probably want to be a little tipsy while you're shopping with today's grocery prices. <laughs> so, yeah, you can hit the bar before you head home with your groceries. Um, that You know, that just sounds amazing. That sounds like a, such, such a Texas thing. Hey, let's go to the grocery store and go ice skating. And you know what? While the kids are ice skating, we'll go hit up the bar at the grocery store. <laughs> oh, man. You got to laugh. If y'all aren't laughing, you don't know what's good for you. All right, let's jump into another one here. Paste picante sauce. I remember they used to have a, <clears throat> they used to have an ad. My gosh, it was always cowboys sitting around. Somebody pull out some other kind of salsa. And they'd say, where's that from? And then they'd all go, New York City, get a rope. It was funny. I don't know. I'm an 80s and 90s kid. So, so you probably heard of paste picante sauce. It's good stuff. Um, Pace was started in 1947 by a guy named David Pace. So he did not grow up in Texas. However, he grew up in Louisiana, but he ended up in San Antonio due to pilot training school in World War II. And that's so interesting. You would think that, you know, once these guys were pilots, they were kind of always pilots. And that's not true. I know there's lots of guys, uh, lots of pilots here at a Shepherd Air Force Base, and some of them retire out and it's interesting the stuff they get into. So Pace began his business doing syrups, jams, and jellies, which is good. But he decided that the real syrup of the Southwest, and that, that was quote, uh, quoted, the real syrup of the Southwest was Mexican picante sauce. So today, most of us just call it salsa or hot sauce. Uh, you go to any Mexican food restaurant, they bring, they bring out chips and hot sauce or chips and salsa. Um, he did try a unique form of marketing. So he would take it to restaurants with him and then he would leave it behind with other people. So, and I had read a little bit about this. He would take like gallon jugs and he would take them into the Mexican food restaurants, pour it out and he would eat some with his meal. And then he'd leave the rest of it behind, you know, I guess for the wait staff and everybody else. Um, he is credited, Pace is credited for the no heat jalapeno. So he uses it in his mild product. So you get the taste of the jalapeno without the burn. Um, it gives it its flavor without all the spice. So Pace today is located in Paris, Texas that is. Um, so they also have some other specialty sauces. So besides their picante sauce, they also do salsa verde or Verde, uh, Mexican four cheese salsa con queso, pico de gallo, pineapple mango chipotle salsa. I'm going to have to try that someday. And then black bean and roasted corn salsa. Those all sound good. So in 1995, the company was bought out by the Campbell Soup Company, which I know another guy here in Wichita Falls. He used to, he worked for Campbell Soup for like 35 years as an accountant. He always had great stories. All right, so there you go, Pace Picante, developed in San Antonio, and uh, let me see, hang on, what was the quote again? Oh, it was the real syrup of the Southwest. I like that, that's kind of good. You know, like, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was, I was talking about how I'm a, I'm a pretty nice guy. Sorry, I'm taking a total segue here. I'm a pretty nice guy, but when people really irritate me, like, you know, in, you, you know how you are, you just kind of always say things in your head. And they don't come out of your mouth. At least for most of us. Some, some of us do. 
And I, I try really hard not to be that, you know, jerk, you know? And my friend laughed at this and he said, you know, whenever I have to talk to somebody like that, a customer service representative that doesn't care, you know, they always say something like, you know, hope you have a nice day or something like that. And he said, I always like to respond, you know, I hope you have the day that you deserve. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of different. And he said, well, you know, because if they're a jerk, they don't really deserve to have a good day. But I don't want to just come out and say it, you know. So I hope you have the day you deserve. <laughs> I kind of like that. Oh, Lord. Sorry. Got a little off there. All right. So how about another one? Does anybody remember that special little tool that you use to cruise around your yard and cut the weeds, you know, and trim along your, you know, your sidewalk and stuff like that? Well, it's kind of like a, a tissue. Everybody calls it Kleenex. Well, Kleenex is the actual brand. It's actually, you know, it's actually a tissue, right? Well, a trimmer or a weed trimmer, I, I've mostly heard people call them weed eaters. And I still call them weed eaters. And again, I didn't know for a long time, weed eaters actually the brand. And so the weed eater was invented in Houston by a guy named George Ballas, B-A-L-L-A-S. And this does say that he is the uh, grandfather of professional dancer Mark Ballas, and I'm probably saying that wrong, could be Ballas, of Dancing with the Stars. So it came to Ballas one day. He's out working in the yard, and he takes a break to wash the car, because why not? If you're working in the yard, eh, let's, let's go wash the car. And so he goes to an automatic car wash, and he sees the nylon bristles, you know, twirling as they do, which we know now really scratch the crap out of your paint. But it gives him this idea to design a similar project, which would protect the bark of a tree, um, you know, that he was trimming weeds around. So he actually went out, tried to find investors. Everybody thought it was a stupid idea that wasn't worth anything, as a lot of inventors run into. Um, but he kind of persisted and he put a bunch of his own money into the idea and it turned out to be worth it because we all know weed eaters today. So in 1977, he ended up selling the company for $80 million, $80 million in 77. Wow. Uh, another one <clears throat> that probably everybody knows about Dell computers. Dell computers actually started in good old Austin, Texas. It was started by a guy named Michael Dell. That's correct. So the first Dell he built in an off-campus dorm room at UT Austin, UT Austin's University of Texas in Austin, and he built it in 1984, and he ended up dropping out of college because, well, and actually he ended up dropping out of college his freshman year to focus on the business, you know, because why not? So he actually did this after receiving, he got $1,000 from family members. $1,000 is what he started with. So of course it all pays off in the end. In 2014, Michael Dell's net worth was estimated to be a whopping 18 billion, with a B, dollars. 18 billion dollars. His very first computer sold for 795 dollars. But here is the crazy thing, okay? 
Remember, 1984, he received $1,000 from his family to help start this business up. He grows it to $18 billion. His first computer, $795. But his first year in business, first year, this blows me away. He grossed over $73 million. I mean, holy smokes. That's, that's just crazy. All right, so, um, you know, another one. I'm just going to skip through a little bit because I know we're getting a little long, getting close to that 30-minute mark. Uh, breast implants. Breast implants were, uh, were um, invented here in Texas um, by doctors Frank Jero and Thomas Cronin. And so it came to them after squeezing a blood, a blood bag. And that's where he kind of came up with the idea of the silicone breast implants. It was squeezing a, a blood bag to help, you know, get some, you know, get some blood out. But the actual first surgery was done on a dog named Ismerelda. So she ended up chewing at her stitches and, you know, a couple of weeks later and breast implant had to be removed, um, but it was considered successful. So then we bump forward to 1962 um, when Timmy Jean Lindsay, the mother of six, underwent surgery to have silicone breast implants inserted. They did this at the Jefferson Davis Hospital in Dallas. They were uh, pleased with the results, and but they still had no idea what the invention would be like today. Um, you know, just kind of is what it is. So as of 2012, it is estimated that somewhere between one and a half and two and a half million women have received breast implants. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, another one, liquid paper, which I did talk about this lady, Bez, uh, Betty Nesmith Graham, um, came up with liquid paper. She was in Dallas. Um, it was first marketed, uh, and it was called Mistake Out. And she marketed it from her home um, in 1956 and Jalel, uh, Jalel, Gillette. That always makes me think Gillette, the best a man can get, you know, with the razors, which I don't use anymore because I, I don't shave, but, uh, they bought her out in 1979, $47 million. It's awesome. Uh, Fritos. So for those of y'all that like Frito chili pie, um, those originated in Texas. So they were actually kind of a different form of corn chips, from uh, that originated in Mexico. So during the depression, a guy named Charles Elmer Doolin, a confectionaire from San Antonio, bought a bag of fried chips at a local gas station. And Doolin liked him so much, he decided to come up with his own recipe. And boom, Fritos make their way out to restaurants all over the place and even Disneyland. Uh, in 1959, he teams up with Herman Lay and comes up with now the famous famous, famous chip brand called Frito-Lay. And, of course, Frito-Lay does Doritos, Cheetos, Tostitos, Ruffles, and all kinds of other beloved snacks. And they are headquartered out of Plano, Texas. And one of the best places you can get a Frito chili pie or just Frito pie, uh, which actually just uses a big bag of Fritos with scoop of chili and cheese in it, is at the Texas State Fair. Um... Fajitas, it says that fajitas were invented in the Rio Grande Valley in the 1930s. Uh, 
Uh, it was thought that ranch hands brought it around. Um, you know, because sometimes these ranch hands were paid in meat trimmings. So, you know, that's kind of cool. Usually steak, and then they put in steak and peppers and onions, and then a flour of corn tortilla. And I could see that being a cowboy thing, because, you know, I, I love being able to eat a burrito. You know, you just grab it and take it with you. It's super easy. Um, the ruby red grapefruit was developed here. This was also in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, it was brought out in about 1929. I remember ruby red grapefruits. Dad and I used to eat them all the time. And uh, pink and white grapefruits were considered too sour, so they weren't very popular. And so they kind of developed this ruby red to be a little sweeter. And uh, yeah, so there you go. Corn dogs. Corn dogs were also invented. That was a Texas State Fair thing way back in 1942. Um, the original was called the Fletcher's Corny Dog, done by brothers Neil and Carl Fletcher. And, you know, they decided that uh, they believed that the ease of eating corn dogs off a stick was part of the reason why they gained so much popularity. Because who doesn't, you know, who doesn't want to eat something off a stick, right? So, yeah, there you go. And they've experimented with all kinds of other stuff. You know, turkey dogs, jalapeno cheese, corn dogs. Um, in the 1980s, um, they, they actually failed in doing a corn dog business um, by op uh, opening uh, franchise locations all across Texas, a few other states. And uh, yeah, it just didn't go well. So now they just remain and they sell them only at the Texas State Fair. So uh, Bill Fletcher, one of the current owners of Fletcher's, says that the recipe is a family secret. And uh, yeah, because 400,000 corn dogs have been sold at the Texas State Fair every single year. Holy smokes. So there you go. There's some inventions from Texas. I did get this out of the Great Book of Texas, the crazy history of Texas with amazing random facts and trivia by a guy named Bill O'Neill. So uh, Bill O'Neill, if you hear this, I hope I, hope I did uh, a good job um, kind of taking stuff out of your book, making it my own, but that, that's a good book. Really enjoy it. So there you go, guys. That's episode number 11 of this, I'm sorry, not this, of Once Upon a Time in Texas. I am your host, Mike Mitchell. So thank you so much. If you know anybody looking to move to or in the state of Texas, have them give me a shout. TheMichaelMitchell.com. Miracle Mortgage, we can do loans anywhere in the state of Texas. And of course, remember, we sell dreams, not mortgages. Everybody go, oh, isn't that nice? That's right. We sell dreams, not mortgages. So anyway, check me out at themichaelmitchell.com. And remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great day.